0: We're going to look at the book of Micah this morning, Old Testament prophet, um, Micah chapter 4. But first, I'm going to tell you a story that few people know. It's kind of fun. You'll be insiders now. Um, It was the early 1970s, and my dad was looking for a conference center that Calvary Chapel could buy in order to host the many retreats and conferences that their, that their church would uh, put on. So he, he heard about one in Twin Peaks, and he went up there to meet with a realtor and look around. Uh, my mom went with him, and so did a friend of theirs. His name was Dan. Now, like my mom and dad, Dan grew up in a very religious home. And to say that he was somewhat jaded would probably be an understatement. He, he could be very cynical uh, about the church. And sometimes he would poke fun at the silly behavior of Christians that he observed growing up in church. So they're walking around this conference center. And Dan starts joking with my folks. He says, hey, let's test and find out if this is really God's will that Calvary Chapel buy this. Now, they had just arrived, and they're just beginning to look around. And so he's, he's making this joke. Let, let's find out if it's God's will. And he asked my dad to give him his Bible. And what he does is he closes his eyes. He opens the Bible and, at random, puts his finger down on a page and starts reading. And he reads this, and it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains. It will be raised above all the hills, and the people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of the host has spoken. Though all the the peoples walk, each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And after reading that, Dan didn't say anything for quite a long time. (laughs) He was very penceful and, and thoughtful and kind of worried. If you visit the Calvary Chapel Conference Center in Twin Peaks, look around, and you'll find a slab of concrete that when they laid it, they etched into it Micah 4, 1 through 5. Well, in Micah's lifetime, Jerusalem had been unstable. Uh, God's messages began to come to Micah during the reign of King Jotham, and King Jotham was a, a good king. he did right in God's sight, but he wasn't remarkable. His, his story is very short. He reigned only sixteen years. After him, his son Ahaz took the, fo- the throne the phone, took the throne, and um, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He was a very bad king. He only reigned 16 years. He did not do right in the sight of the Lord, we're told in Chronicles. He burned incense in the valley of ben Hinnom, and burned his sons in fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. Ahaz was followed by King Hezekiah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He was a spectacular king and led a spiritual revival in Jerusalem, in all of Judah, and even invited their, their families in the north to join them in this revival. But underneath the social reforms, there was a secret illness still, um, in, um, still in the life of the people. It was terminal. It was going to destroy them. And that's Micah's message. In chapter 3, verse 9, Micah says, Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price. And her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of of ruins. And the mountain of the temple will become high, uh, high places of a forest. I want to mention, by the way, that there's a difference between Jerusalem and Zion. Um, they they coincide, but it's not exactly the same. Jerusalem is a place on Mount Moriah. Zion is a vision of God, almost a, a utopian vision of a, a perfect society because... He's present in it. He's honored by it. He's loved and adored. And and his will is fully done in Zion. Zion is the perfection of what Jerusalem could become, um, and never did. Zion would be like heaven on earth. Now, in light of Micah's doom and gloom message, I'm sure his audience had a few questions. Well, Micah, is there any hope for us? Do we have a future? Will we ever be what God wants us to be? And if so, what will that look like? If they ask, Is there any hope for us, meaning that immediate generation, he'd have to say, No. God has determined to pass judgment on you for your sins. Is there any hope in the future? Yes. And what will that look like? And God's answer is in the passage that I first read. Zion will become the center of a world looking for God. Anyone who wants to find God, who wants to know about God, will journey to Zion. Welcome to reflection. (laughs) How did we get started? And where are we going? The first question is fairly easy to answer. In 2004, I visited a hermitage on the northern California coast where um, a a young friend of mine was. And I believed that he needed support. Um, Little did I know he didn't need anything uh, except a good therapist. But um, that wouldn't have helped anyway. Uh, But I went up there to visit him and to encourage him. And while I was there, I met a monk and was almost immediately impressed with the depth of his spirituality and with the way that he lived, what he talked about. You know, one of my questions to him was, uh, Father Romuald, the spiritual hunger that brought you to this place And by this place, I meant the vows he had taken, the place where he lived, the lifestyle of living there, uh, owning nothing, having one main meal a day, uh, waking up early for uh, vigils. The hunger that brought you here, the spiritual hunger that brought you here, has that been satisfied? And very matter-of-factly, he said, yes, it has. And I said... I envy you because I have a longing for God that's unsatisfied. And then he said, well, I'm not about experience. You know, I'm I'm not looking for God to appear to me or anything. Um, He said, I come from good German stock, and we think that such things are nonsense. It's too emotional. It's more for the French. (laughs) Uh, But I don't know what that meant, but uh, sacre bleu. Anyway um, he, uh, but as we went on he, and, and spoke, and he talked about the peace that he lived with about you know all through his, his life, I said, well, that's the kind of spiritual experience I'm talking about and he, he listened to me, and then he kind of smirked because he thought, well, maybe I am into experience more than I realize. Maybe this does mean more to me than than what I had thought about. I continued to visit with him for the next two years. I met him the weekend after Easter, 2004, and he died two weeks before Easter, 2006. And during that time, I talked to him as often as I could, and we exchanged a few letters, too. He introduced me to contemplative spirituality. Simply put, I see contemplative spirituality as real-life Christianity. The challenge is this. We have to live in reality. That's all there is, is reality. But many people feel they cannot live in reality, that its hard edges are unbearable, and its demands are overwhelming, and they're not fit for it. So we have created unrealistic forms of religion. Some are unrealistically miraculous. And in those churches, you go every Sunday night to watch Moses part the Red Sea once again. Uh, Others are all in the head, and it's, it's all about what you know And how much of it you know. Others are real chummy with God, and Jesus is my imaginary friend. Oh, and he's just so wonderful. You know, you know, um, I realized that I needed Jesus. That when I moved on from my teddy bear, it had to be him. Um, And I. Oh, I've become Dan. I'm rather cynical myself. Uh, forgive me, I, because I don't mean to disparage these things. There are aspects of them that that need to be in, they need to be somewhere. So um, contemplative spirituality is the real experience of God. You know, I wanted all this flash and bang for the longest time. But contemplative spirituality taught me a hope, a, 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 sur- a surviving hope that doesn't depend on the world being good or people being nice or miracles every day. That I don't need the world to be a good, predictable place you know, with explanations for why bad things happen. I don't need people to be nice to me. And I don't need to see miracles to rest in hope, to be anchored in hope. After leaving my former pastorate, a few people wanted to keep tracking with me, uh, three people in, in particular. And the guilty parties are here this morning. Um, eventually, I agreed. And I invited them and a handful of others into our home. And for 10 weeks, we watched videos of my conversations with Father Romuald. And when we'd watch the videos, they would inspire these deep, enriching conversations afterwards. Most of our time was spent talking about what he had said. He provoked us and evoked so many thoughts and ideas. And he expanded our hearts. And we began to react against the judgmental barriers that had corralled us for so long, those began to come down. And we thought more openly about things we had been told not to think about. We were handed answers for everything, and we didn't have to think about anything on the other side of the fence. And to be able to have those conversations with each other without anyone clobbering anyone else with a Bible verse, or, or you know, any other weapon uh, available. But just be able to talk about, well, I've always thought, or I've always felt, or does this mean that? And I, I love that, does this mean questions? Because I would just smile and say, I can't answer that for you. And that's so cool. I don't have to have an answer for you. You have to find out on your own. We had some beautiful, deep, uplifting conversations. But by the eighth week of those 10-week videos, people in the group were asking, what are we going to do next? And my answer was, you're going to go home to your house. (laughs) That's that's what we're going to do. And you won't be coming here anymore. Um, I realized. With the question, though, I realized that a we had been formed. You know what I mean? It's like we had, we had been having this experience together, and it was creating a bond um, and a, a collective spiritual growth. Each one of us were growing, but we were also growing together and through our interaction with each other. So it was rather remarkable. But I wasn't prepared to do anything about it at that time. Um, A few people asked me to show those videos in their home. So I did that a couple more times over the next year. And maybe a year and a half after the first venture, uh, the people who are still harassing me, I said, OK, here's what we'll do. We'll start meeting on Sunday nights. And it will be real informal. And again, some of those people in those first Sunday night meetings are here today. We would sit in silent prayer for about 15 minutes. Then I'd suggest something from scripture. And then we would explore how that would look in the light of contemplative spirituality or in light of the things that we had been thinking about and learning. And and I saw what God had done, and it was cool. (laughs) We were being freed from a lot of religious programming. Now, that's cool. That's one part of it. But you can get stuck there and and you can become you know this uh, this activist you know down with mainline churches and that's not that's not the solution. that's not god's program at all to see what was wrong for us and to see how we had participated in that or been abused by it or victims of it and to be freed from that that was great but the whole point was the chains are off so that we can go someplace else now. We don't stand here, chains off, looking at the passing. Look at that. That's so bad. That's so wrong. All those people saying what we're doing is so wrong. They're so wrong. <laughs> Where do you get with that? I said it first. No, I said it first. No, I said it first. <laughs> we enjoyed what well, what we were experiencing, the growth, the progress, the becoming. And we realized this was not a destination. This was a journey. And that our faith was a journey. And that there was to be this this constant deepening and developing. And that it was okay to not even be halfway there yet. It was okay to be exactly where we were, learning what we needed to learn in this moment. It was a couple more years after that, before we started reflection. Um, And the idea was to include more people in our conversation. And again, Barb and I opened our home. And a few months before our first meeting, uh, now that I'd committed myself to this, I started to think about what will be the vision for reflection. And seriously, I drew out a Venn diagram. If you know what that is, it's a way of uh, organizing uh, a corporation, it's, its main values and services, you know, defining who the customer is and so on. And I'm working on this Venn diagram, and I'm, and, and I'm constantly changing it. And I'm thinking, no, no, that's not it. No, that's not it. And one day, I felt very strongly that God spoke to me and said, uh, Charles. It's never good when someone calls me Charles. Um, uh, put, Put that away. Don't do that. See, leaders need to have a vision. and People need a vision. And I should be able to tell you where we're going. He said, don't do that. He said, just meet and let my spirit give the community its shape. And I thought, this will be fun, an adventure, to see what the potter molds, what's in his mind, as it's revealed in the process. Have you ever watched an artist start with a blank canvas and then begin to paint? The artist knows what it's going to be when he's done. You have no idea until it's finished, or close to being finished anyway. And so that's. That's where we were when we first started. Now, that's what makes the second question, where are we going, so much more difficult to answer. I pray for us every week. I pray for reflection every week. And many times when I pray, I wonder what we are. About a week ago, I was thinking, we're like, Neurons in the brain, and how one neuron will connect to other neurons, and how these synapses are formed, and how communication goes. I, and and I was thinking, wow, um, a neuron gets an impulse, a very specific impulse from other neurons around it, and that impulse can lead to it sending a message to other neurons. But maybe it won't send the message. It all depends on action potential. The movement of electricity down the axon that causes a a polarity of, of ions, and that movement of electricity has to be strong enough for the, the neuron, the brain cell, to fire and send that message out. And it has around it cheerleaders saying, go, go, go. And um, eors saying, don't, don't. <laughs> it's getting messaged, messi- messages that both excite it and dampen it. Why should there be any dampening of the neuron? Well, because if it fires and doesn't stop firing, it will fry. It will burn out. So after it fires, it needs to calm down. That's why the dampeners. But the dampeners can prevent it from firing. If the impulse isn't strong enough, one neuron will not speak to another and will not connect with it. That that synaptic connection will not happen. The action potential is enough energy that causes it to release its neurotransmitters, and the message goes out. And I was thinking, we're like neurons in the brain, and, and we all need each other. We all depend on the whole, and we all have our own little, little role that we do in receiving and, and giving. But reflection isn't the brain, and it's, it's not, we're not a bunch of neurons. And I don't know what we are, and that's why I ask God God, what is reflection anyway? God's children, children, yes. God's little neurons. Um, I know we're not the corporation. And when I say reflection, I know we're not even reflection. That's not who you and I are. Not this morning. Do you see what I'm saying? Probably not. That's a little bit (laughs) out there. I have a question I'd like all of us to think about. And I think that collectively, we hold the answer. I don't think any one person has it. I don't have it. And the question is this. What sort of experience do you think people would expect if they visit a spiritual community? Reflection, a spiritual community. Oh, really? What? do you think people would expect if they go visit a spiritual community? Long ago, someone made the point, hey, if you go to a bar, you can expect alcohol. If you go to a church, you should be able to expect love. What do you expect to experience in a spiritual community? What is Reflection's gift to its visitors? What's our gift to Dana Point? What's our gift to the world? I'm not asking, what do we want Reflection to be known for? I'm convinced that God never throws his support behind any brand name. This occurred to me years ago when the vineyard ministries were breaking away from the Calvary Chapel affiliation. And a lot, well, several of my good friends were going vineyard. And several of the brighter Calvary Chapel pastors were going vineyard. And I was on my knees, literally on my knees one day. And I said, God, please don't let all the smart guys leave Calvary Chapel. and that's when he said hey i'm not into any brand names i'm not into vineyard or calvary chapel and i just i i was freed god says there's only one name i endorse and jesus has been given a name above all names that at the name of jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess jesus christ is lord to the glory of the father Besides, we don't want to be known for anything. We don't even want to be known. I don't want reflection to be known. I just want to be here without, you know, being hassled or I- invaded or whatever. On my first visit to the hermitage, I was very nervous. I didn't know much about Roman Catholicism, I had read a few Roman Catholic authors. Um, I didn't know anything about the Roman Catholic liturgy or ritual. And I I wondered what would happen if they found out I was a Protestant. And I was thinking, oh, I know it really shows. (laughs) I don't know how, but they they know. um, And I was really worried about that. What would they think? Would they want to convert me? Would they think that I was less of a Christian for not being Roman Catholic? And my friend, when I got there, said, you know, this place is so great. They don't care what you believe. You could be Buddhist. You could be New Age. You could be atheist. And they don't care. Let's suppose I'm New Age, and I go there, and I say, I'd like to talk to a monk for some spiritual advice. And a monk meets with me, and I sit down, and he says, well, well, what's going on? And I tell him what's going on, and he begins where I am. And he doesn't say, well, you know, it would really help if you became a Roman Catholic, or that really is the answer. He doesn't say that. He says, well, in your practice, do you meditate? Well, yes, at least I'm supposed to. Okay, and and tell me about that. So I tell him, and he says, well... um, that's okay, but I think you can make some improvements on that. Why don't you try this breathing method? In other words, he knows God has me on my spiritual journey, and he is just there to meet me and help me to the next step. He's not there to do the entire work of God in one hour. He's just there to help me take the next step. And when my friend told me that, I just felt so free. I thought, well. If they're going to take New Age and Buddhists and atheists, they've got to accept me. <laughs> you know, a Protestant boy. And you know, um, after my conversations with with Romuald, the labels meant nothing to me. They, there was no significance to them anymore, not to me. They just didn't work for me to say I was Protestant or to say I was Catholic or that he was Catholic. It just didn't have any meaning anymore. We were two brothers in Jesus Christ, one who had much to give the other. One time I I left a few things, uh, food items and whatever, um, in the cafeteria at the Hermitage. I was very privileged to be able to live inside the cloister uh, where Most people are not allowed to go. I was very privileged to eat the noon meal with them every day. And uh, before I left, um, I left them some things, some gifts in in the cafeteria and a note in which I said, thank you very much for all your kindness and openness to me. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Recognize that? from. The fourth century, Christians began visiting monasteries. And they had to do some travel to get to the monasteries in Syria and the Egyptian desert. And it was not easy travel. Like uh, Daniel Burstein said, uh, travel is related to the word travail. And in those days, to travel was to suffer. And they'd go to the monasteries for. The spiritual depth and understanding of those who lived there. The monks, who, by the way, many of those monks became important theologians of uh, the Christian faith as it was being formed through the writings of scripture at that time. Many of the monks. Saint Augustine was a monk, for heaven's sake. They'd go there for spiritual renewal and to learn prayer practices that the monks would teach them. Romuald explained that people came to the monastery because the most horrible kinds of situations are welcome at the monastery. Mercy is at the monastery. He said that a church pastor may not have time or space in his schedule for some matters, but in a monastery, you have no place to be but God. So of course people would want to go to the monastery. And I've wondered if visiting reflection could be like visiting a monastery or a hermitage, where while we're here, we have no place to be but God, and that anyone could come and say, well, here's my need. And perhaps any one of us could say, well, let's let's just sit down outside in the shade for a while and talk and share what we've learned, and what we've heard, and what's helped us. And so what would that look like? What would we have to be? I think perhaps we'd have to be no more than the first verse of Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. We would be like all those people who swarmed around Jesus, the deaf, the sick, the disabled, the possessed, the broken. We would be exactly like them, wretched. And like them, we would be alone in the world without hope. But we were found and rescued by a Savior whose strong arms and deep compassion we trust. We keep coming because we know we'll never be turned away. We know he'll never leave the door closed and locked. By grace, God points us in the right direction. And by grace, he gives us the strength to go in that direction. And we can admit our imperfections. We do. Like Paul, we learn to, to rejoice in our imperfections. I don't know if you've heard of Anne Lamott. Um, She wrote a book entitled Tender Mercies. And, oh no, Traveling Mercies, I think it was. I love that book. I've read a couple others by her. Not as crazy about them, but that's me. That book I love. I got to hear her interviewed at Baylor University a while back when I was there for a conference. And the interviewer, asked her some pointed questions, and at one point she said, "Um, well, I'm a Christian, not a very good one, and I love that disclaimer, because she was saying, you know, um, I am a Christian. I do embrace this person, Jesus Christ, and I, I trust him for my life and for everything, but I haven't become very proficient at it yet. I'm not very far along yet. I'm not very good at it yet. So don't look to me for everything you want to know about Jesus. But I can point him out for you. It was, it, it was beautiful. and it impressed me. You see, our honesty is our credibility. The perfect church with all the perfect people, in you know, every Ken and Barbie with its, their two and a half children, um, that are, you know, are always, you know, on time and, you know, just <laughs> have their whole lives together. Nobody believes that. Nobody, only, a, you know, a, a very uninsightful person would buy into that. And only a crazy person would want to be that, you know, or be in that. You know, if you were in that kind of a, a church day. You'd be thinking, oh, they're going to find me out. They're going to find me out. I know they're going, to, they're, they're, they're going to get on to me sooner or later. Our story is that in spite of ourselves, Jesus doesn't reject us. In fact, it's for this reason that Jesus keeps me on a short leash. I'm that little kid in the mall with a harness and a, you know, a, a spiral strap on his mother's wrist. It, You know, it's like, because he knows me. Okay, maybe we'll never be like a monastery. Maybe we can't duplicate that here. Maybe it takes uh, a lifestyle to living where we do, and the lives that we do, we can't actually be that. We can move in that direction. We can seek to be more mindful of God, more constantly, every day. Though, you know, we don't have high expectations for ourselves in that regard. Just little reminders during the day, just moments where, oh, yeah, God's here, I'm going to breathe. Oh, yeah, I feel it. Oh, what was that, boss? Okay, I'll, I'll get right on it. You know, it's just, but just that moment is good enough. What can we do or what can we be? Well, we can accept people as they are without judgment we can live in grace and mercy and peace. And wouldn't that be wonderful to never have to worry about being judged? We're, we're explaining ourselves all the time. Well, this is why I did this. I didn't ask why you did that. I don't care why you did that. You don't have to explain yourself to me. I'm not making any judgment about how you dress or how you talk or where you've been or who you are. Wouldn't that, isn't that freeing for you to say, hey, I can be here no one's going to judge me for being Protestant or Catholic or for anything else, for being Buddhist, for being Hindu. We can talk about our new life. I once was lost, but now am found. We can talk about at least our moments of aliveness, that is, those moments when we are in the spirit, the, the living water, Our partnership is with the Holy Spirit. Remember that, that you're never alone and that the Spirit is here and that his work in you is greater than you know. His help for you is greater than you know. I sometimes thank God for all the things he's protected me from that I never saw coming and never saw going and never saw when they were supposed to hit. I have no knowledge of them and never will this side of heaven. But I know he's done it. We can talk about Jesus and how he's connected us to God and what he means to us. Paul said, We do not preach ourselves. And that's true. One time when he had, uh, performed this miracle on a crippled man who's listening to him speak, all the people in that city uh, thought that. Paul and Barnabas were gods, and they're going to offer a sacrifice to him. And Paul didn't understand what they were doing because he didn't know their their language. And so when he figured out what it was that they were doing, he said, stop. And he ripped open his clothes, and this is either the the gesture of grief or strong passion, or it was to show them what he said. We are mortals. We are mortal human beings just like you. Peter, after healing a, a, a man at the gate of the temple, and everyone's flocking around him, he said, why are you looking at us as though we did this through our own power? And when he was asked by the high council, in whose name did you do this, he said, well, if you want to know how this poor man crippled for so many years was miraculously put on his feet and today walks and leaps, then let it be known to you that it is in the name of Jesus Christ for there is no other name given under heaven by which a person can be made whole like this. Don't look at us, but I can tell you about Jesus. Living in community means having friends of all sorts and for all sorts of reasons. Friends you would have never chosen and reasons you would have never thought of but now here they are, your friends. We cannot be everything to everyone. But we can be the one thing that everyone needs. A a signpost to Jesus Christ, God the Father, the dispenser of grace that saves the broken, like us. We can be human, we can be light and love, and we can be hope. Would you stand with me, please? May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.